The young man sat in his sullied tunic as he was scraping off the dross from the silver that was before him that had been heated in the kiln. The heat of the kiln continued to billow in his face as he placed that silver back in to continue its purification. In the meantime, behind him, he heard his master Demetrius beginning to hawk the wares. He had been producing small little replicas of the temple of Artemis that stood on the hill. And he was to sell these to visitors and worshipers all across Asia. And he would hear as the people would walk by in the marketplace, this Agora, talking about the wares they were selling and the things that they were buying. Demetrius would shout out, hey, come receive one of the temples of Artemis silver. It's unbreakable. It's amazing. You know, just kind of putting forth these various words. And of course, Tyrannus would laugh to himself as he would hear various people uh, refuse, walk by or accept and buy. But this day was different. And it seemed that everyone he encountered seemed to have a similar remark. Oh no, I don't need that anymore. Thank you, but I, I don't believe that the gods that are made by hands are gods at all. I follow the way. I'm with this one Paul. He's been teaching me. Demetrius, have you met him? Have you heard about him? Finally, after the last encounter, Tyrannus and his hard work heard Demetrius just slam his fist on the table. I'm sick and tired of this Paul and this way. Tyrannus, and Tyrannus turned to his master and, get up, we need to gather the guild. And so he went out and they began to gather the other silversmiths into the street. The dust began to pound as men came out with their aprons and their sullied various tunics, coming out looking stern and upset. In the meantime, Demetrius also gathered other tradesmen and they gathered in the center of this entire marketplace where at Hecate, a very witch of, or goddess of witchcraft stood over the crossroad of the town. And there in that evil glare, he began to declare to everyone. You see these things we produce. This brings us much money. This is our livelihood. And yet it's at risk, my friends. It's at risk. He turned to them and began to foment the crowd as he began to talk about the fact that Paul was teaching that these handmade gods are not gods at all. And he said, this is a risk to us. This will defeat our entire venture that we're about. And in fact, and then he pointed up into the mountaintop, and there up at the hill in the high place of Ephesus, you would have seen the white columns reaching up of the very temple of Artemis. And there in the gleaming in the sun, he pointed at even our great Artemis. She will be forgotten. All of the renown and all the, all the pomp and circumstance that goes to her in this town in all of Asia will be forgotten. The people begin to cry as he points again up to the temple and he says, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. He says it again, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And soon the crowd along Tyrannus with them begins to declare, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Suddenly someone yells to the theater and they all grab people and begin to pull them out of their various booths, marching in their sandals all the way down the road, down to the cliffside that had been hollowed out in a fan shape with all these clear white stones where people could sit. Soon Tyrannus was at the entrance. He looked at the stage that was before him and he watched the men flow into the theater, shouting one thing, shouting another. Everyone was in confusion. And yet Tyrannus knew why they were there. They were going to stop the way. They were going to end Paul's message. And soon people were standing on the very stage. Two of them had been drug in. Two of Paul's very messengers. Tyrannus leaned in, thinking, this is it. Those sandaled, silly men are going to find themselves in trouble now with their little teachings and things. The people were shouting and screaming as thousand-plus people filled into the very theater there in Ephesus. Looking down at these men, people yelled one thing and another, and Tyrannus, standing at the entrance, looked out, and he saw 
the very man Paul, he had recognized him. He'd been there for two years. And as he was coming down the street, soon a crowd got in front of him. They pushed him and moved him away. And he wondered, that was weird. Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he come here and defend himself? He had no honor. And soon he turns back and he noticed some other people had pushed a man up onto the actual platform and he raised his hand to speak. As he did, they could see that wrapped on his arm was one of the boxes and long phylacteries hung from his robes. He was clearly one of the Jewish men from the synagogue and soon the entire area erupted. They weren't going to have a man who proclaimed Artemis as no God talk to them. And they began to scream, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. People threw dust in the air. Others screamed and yelled, but soon in a roar, in a rumble, in a rhythmic motion, people began to yell, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Tyrannus screaming at himself for two whole hours they continued on, two whole hours. It echoed down the streets of Ephesus. Two whole hours, the men on stage wondered what was going to happen to them until finally the town clerk approached. He stood before them in his toga and he looked up at these people and he said, my friends, calm down. And they began to be quiet and sit and listen. He looked at them and he looked at Demetrius and he said, listen, we know that Artemis cannot be argued against. We are the ones who protect the sacred stone that fell from the sky. These things cannot be argued for or against. In fact, what I want to tell you guys is that if you have a dispute against these men, he looked at Demetrius, then take it to the proconsul. Of course, in a rightful assembly, we can answer these questions. And then he looked at the crowd as if to shame them all. He said, but we are about to be charged with rioting by the Romans. At that point, men began to calm down and be very quiet. And he said, now we need to be done with this. And he dismissed the entire crowd. And slowly, man after man, person after person began to leave the various exits. Tyrannus watched as Demetrius walked by grumbling and he wondered to himself as he followed his master back to their place in the marketplace. What is this way that if we can't stop it this way, how are we to do so? What is this way that continues to make such an impact in our city? Maybe you've heard a story like this before. Maybe you've read your Bible and you actually know the text we're talking about. Or maybe you've experienced something similar. No, you've never been thrown into a theater and yelled at, or you've never been part of a mob running up and down in a city. I hope not. But perhaps you've been online. And you made a statement that somebody decided was going was a wrong statement. And they began to call you names. And soon other people began to jump on top. And soon everybody was yelling and everybody was screaming and nobody was making any sense. There was no logic about it at all. Or maybe you were in a boardroom and you mentioned a scripture or you said something about God or, you know, what you did at church. And another guy and a couple others began to argue with you and shout you down. Perhaps you've been in many situations. Maybe you're not even a Christian. You've just mentioned a political view or an opinion of your own. And you've been met with anger, rancor and shouts. It's a common situation for many of us in this world. And in this certain case that we're looking at here, it's one because of an impact that's been made. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful. It is a true spirituality that begins to change, not just human hearts, but in the changing of human hearts, it begins to spread out and it changes all kinds of things. It begins to make an impact. In fact, what I find powerful is Newton's third law states that when you have an object, say like a ball, and it is uh, moving at a direction with a force, when it meets another object, it will come back because it finds an equal and opposite force pushing against it. 
Newton's third law of motion then is fascinating. We've kind of summed it up as every action has an equal and opposite reaction, but let me put it this way. Whenever there's something that has impact, you're going to find a reaction. The same thing goes with the gospel. See, church, when the gospel is proclaimed and it has an impact, man, there's going to be a reaction. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this scenario, this scene that I've painted for you that is found here in the Bible in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 21. And we're going to look at how that impact of the gospel began to move and make things happen. Now, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. You can open up there to Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, you can open on an app. You can go get it on a computer. There's all kinds of places you can have access to the Bible, and you can look this up. Now, if you have a Bible and you're new to it, um, the front half, this is the Old Testament. Keep going to the right. In fact, it's easier to start at the back and go left. If you see a bunch of names like Luke and Mark and Matthew, go right. If you see a bunch of numbers before names, go left. You'll find Acts right there. And we're looking at chapter 19. Now, this is a history written by a man named Luke. He was a physician, and he was on a, he was on a journey on a, a church planting team with a man named Paul. And that's who we're following right now. See, Paul once persecuted the church. He hated Jesus until he met the resurrected Jesus. Converted by the resurrected Jesus on his way to persecute Christians, he flipped on the spot and became the greatest church planner we've ever known. And we're following his journey as Luke writes it out for a Roman aristocrat who has asked him questions about the history of the church. And so here we are, where Paul is planting churches in a city called Ephesus. Now that's on kind of the very edge in the sea um, by at uh, the edge of modern-day Turkey, and um, you can you can look that up at another time. But he's been in this town for two years. He's been he's been preaching the gospel. It is a very influential city. It is the capital of the whole Asia Minor area that that Greek, that Turkey area. And so he is now about to engage in another form of mission. You see, he's he's evangelized the area, and Paul's ready to move on. We pick up here in verse 21. Now. After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, what he's doing here is he's actually sending off his uh, couple of his uh, partners in, uh, in church planning to go back to the churches they've been to. And he's going to go through those churches and make a collection. There's been a large famine that has been happening in Jerusalem. And he's gathering money to support the churches and the brothers who live in Jerusalem and Antioch. And so that's the journey he's about to enter on. But before he's able to go, the impact of Demetrius' riot hits. And that's what we want to look at. Because he's been there for two years talking and motivating and speaking about Jesus and calling people to walk with him. And last week we saw that there was such an impact that people were willing to abandon all of their magic, all these things they used to do. We talked about it as abandoning the pornography, abandoning the drugs, abandoning the evil things that we've been engaged with, abandoning any sin and hindrance that holds us down, be it alcohol, be it marijuana, be it shopping, you name it. And we're going to set these things aside to pursue Jesus. When that happened, there was a major impact. Because the hearts of the church were changed. Because the hearts were impacted. They impacted the city. You see, true impact affects all levels and parts of a city. Every level, every part of a city can be and will be often impacted 
And it's true of even the, the society portion. I mean, when we think about our society, we have kind of ranges in our society. We got the poor, we got the middle class, we, we talk about the rich, all these kind of people. We've got the educated and the uneducated. But every level, every aspect of a society is often affected by the gospel. It's not just for the poor, and it's not just for the rich, it's not just for the working class, it's for every human being on the planet. And so when that gospel begins to impact, it started to move. In fact, first thing it moved on was the way people consumed their, their various arts and goods in the, in the community. See, Demetrius was a silver maker. He didn't just make um, just little beautiful art pieces. These were religious art pieces. And people stopped buying them because they stopped believing in the God of Artemis. And so we see that Demetrius here, a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. So here the gospel has impacted the commerce. It's impacted the economy. And now they're saying, hey guys, things are changing. Now imagine in our world, if this was to happen in this way, if the gospel was to really impact the church, and I'm talking all the churches, the Christians who are really following Jesus, then what would happen is you would begin to see pornographers rising up going, why are people not buying our stuff? You begin to watch the marijuana dispensaries going, what's going on in this town? We're not making any money. That you would see people begin to rise up and, and say the drug dealers and the mob going, we got to fix those churches. We got to break into those places and stop this stuff. This has to end. You'd see the abortionists beginning to close their doors because people would be willing to take in the babies. All these things would happen because the church had been radically transformed by this gospel and that gospel had changed person after person after person. That's an impact. And that impact begins to move and roll, not just in any section, not just in the guilds here, which is what this is, it'd be like the unions, but it would begin to move even into the elite. And this is interesting because it did move into the elite later as Paul's about to go in to defend himself amidst the riot, we run into this sentence. Look at verse 30, if you will. And it says this, But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. I love this sentence. Because what you see here is these Asiarchs, who were friends of his, the Asiarchs are the leaders. And they're at a level of leadership that's, that's far higher than the town clerk. These men were wealthy citizens of Rome. These men were the kind of men who honestly, they were able to engage in levels of society that, that were considered elite. It would be like professors and scientists and movie stars, people who we put in our elite kind of celebrity status level. And here's an interesting thing about the gospel. It makes impacts in all the elite levels and in the leadership levels because Christians aren't afraid to make friends with these people. Paul wasn't afraid to call them friends and they weren't afraid to call Paul a friend. In fact, I think about the fact that my wife and I have had an opportunity with other Christians to join in at Santiago to be on the, uh, the parent council for the principal there. And the reason we did that is we wanted to connect with the AP. We wanted to connect with the principal to say, we care about the school. We're praying for the school. Olive Branch loves the school. You know, maybe you've connected with a council member. Maybe you've been engaged with the, the leader over your sports team or the head of your HOA. We need to befriend people. Bring those people into our lives. I want to challenge you. Who in your life right now is in a leadership position that you can begin to build that bridge with so that the gospel has a chance to reach into there? Because real impact is going to impact those leaders. Real impact is going to impact our police chiefs and our fire chiefs. It's going to impact our school board and our unions. It's going to have its effect. 
in all the different strata of a city. It's also going to affect all the areas in a city, in a country, in a culture. In fact, what we see here is that for them, it began to affect the arts, right? The silversmithing and the, and the beautiful things, the trades that were going on. It began to affect the commerce. It began to affect the government. It began to affect the religions, the Jewish people and the religious, um, the religious pagans. Man, it began to affect everywhere. The same thing is true for us. Right now, while you're stuck in your home, it can begin to affect the internet. It can begin to affect what you say no to and what you allow into your life. It begins to affect the way we design and make our things, what we put out there for people, how we relate to our neighbors, how we care about those around us. It changes our world. And I want to encourage you. This happens when we actually take hold of the culture and stop consuming it, just consuming it without discerning it. What is it in your life that you've not been discerning about? You've just been consuming it because what you do is you create an audience and you create a market for that to be made. And sometimes what we do as Christians is we unthinkingly produce a market for things that we don't agree with. When the church was impacted, they didn't just go buy silver things to kind of keep the silversmiths going. No, because they thought they were pretty and cool little things. No, they knew those were religious objects. They knew those were opposed to their faith and they set them aside and it started to change things. And what happens is when we become more Christian, when we become more serious about our faith, not because of some legalistic rules, but because Jesus is so much more worth than worth it than any of these other things. Far more worth, worth it than any of the sexual addictions. Far more worth it than any of the drug addictions. Far more worth it than any of the, any of the fighting in our marriage or, or the trying to be one-upsmen or the success in our business. I mean, he's so worth it that it changes the way we do life. And that changes our society. Yeah, like the internet. Like our, our very neighborhoods. And this is powerful stuff because when that gospel makes that impact, it makes a big impact impact. It affects all of these areas. And here's the thing. We're going to take that impact and it's going to be made, but there's going to be a reaction, right? True impact will create a reaction every single time. And we need to be ready for that reaction because there is a reaction that's coming. And off the silversmith had a reaction and he formed a mob. In fact, he formed an angry mob, a confused mob. Look at this again, verse 28, as we read about these events we've already kind of looked at, but when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were with Paul, who were Paul's companions in travel. And so they come in and they're just shouting and they create this mob and they're angry. And like I said, we've ran into this before, right? You've ran into it on the internet as trolls are screaming and yelling at you. Maybe you've ran into this in, in a neighborhood or at a, maybe it's been a Thanksgiving dinner or maybe it's been another situation in your life as a boardroom at work or something, but the impact has come back and boom, it's hitting you. It's getting at you. I found this one time when I've been trying to evangelize. I, I was um, in an actual class teaching us apologetics and how to present evidence with the faith and, and make an argument for our, why Christianity is true. And I gathered with a friend and he had about eight others with him. And my wife and I were in there trying to make this argument. And we got through the first argument about, you know, 
time has a beginning and what's before that can't be some power within the world. It has to be beyond it. It has to be personal. We, so we made this whole argument. And suddenly one person asks a question that has nothing to do with what I just said. And another person starts laughing at the question because they think it's a silly question. Soon they're mocking. Some are yelling. Some are asking questions and not even asking for anything. And it just becomes total bedlam. You see, you can't even get a word in edgewise, right? It is a complete sudden stop to the entire conversation. That's what was happening here. As that Jewish man stood up, some of the crowd had pushed him up. His name was actually Alexander. They pushed him forward kind of to make an argument that, hey, we're not, we Jewish people, we're not with the Christians, just so you guys, and they were just like, we're not going to have anything with it. We don't want to hear anything. We're done with you. And they just started shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, over and over and over. Reminds me a lot of like what happens on some college campuses as people stand up and just start chanting to try to shout down the person who's talking. And this reminds us that, hey guys, when we get in these situations, mobs are often angry, they're often confused, and they're often engaged in this way because of fear. They believe and they fear they're losing something. And so they're going to respond. It may just be an individual. I've found often people get the most angry when you try to take away that which they love the most. See, if they love their identity, whether it's a sexual identity or whether it's an identity for an ethnicity or it's an identity perhaps for their religion, and you try to, to bring Christ in and he confronts that man, people get angry. When people see things that they love are called sin, when they see that their gods are called false, man, people get angry. Don't be surprised. People are going to get angry. You should expect people to get mad at you when you're engaged with the gospel to make an impact. Because every impact has that reaction. Here's the thing. If you're expecting it, then that means you're not going to get hurt by it. You're going to expect it. You're going to engage it. You're going to understand it's going to happen. And you're not going to change your position because you know that people are going to get mad when these things happen. I, th I think one pastor once said, when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one that you hit. Often when we present a gospel and somebody reacts angrily, oftentimes it's because that message is driving in. It's coming with conviction. And so don't get hurt when they get mad. Because what will often happen next is after you get hurt, after you react to their reaction, you'll get mad. And at that point, we've lost everything. We don't need to get mad. The gospel doesn't need us to get mad. And we don't need to necessarily um, make some kind of response and say, well, wait, 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 wait. What are we supposed to do? Well, first, we got to respond rightly to reactions. There is a right way to respond. And, it's, and sometimes you're going to be surprised what it is. Now, here in this case, what we see is that I want to call us first as a church not to become a mob. The mobs are the confusion. The mobs are the angry. And you know what? Unfortunately, I think there has been a history of us in the last few decades as a church, as we're watching things that we love, as we're watching things that we hold on to, that we call values being pulled away from us, that we've become fearful and we've become angry. And in fact, we've attacked We've yelled. We've tried to use mob mentalities. We've been the ones online shouting and screaming, you're stupid, you're dumb, you're this, you're that, without argument, without calmness, without engagement. It's been us who've gathered in large groups to shout and picket and do certain things. Oh, yes, 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 I know everybody's done it. But hey, the church is not supposed to. We are called to follow Jesus in a positive direction. We'll get to that in a minute. When it comes to the anger, when it comes to the reaction, because every impact, it has a reaction. We can either be a reaction back or we can handle that reaction rightly. It's interesting because 
we can run into these mobs and become one, but all they gain are bad reputations. Take a look at this in verse 38. What we find is that Demetrius has been up front shouting this stuff and up comes that, that city clerk. And this is his argument. He says, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. You could do it the right way. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly for we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today. That's interesting. That the outside world watching this situation were saying, those guys are in confusion. Those guys are rioting. They got the bad reputation. Often what happens when we lose our cool and we start shouting and screaming and we start being the ones who are losing our minds, we gain a bad reputation. We get, being, we get called names. We get called worse things because really what happens is we are engaged in our fear. We are engaged in losing things. And if we're going to have a civil discourse in our country, if we're going to have a civil discourse during this time about very fearful things, then we must approach people and realize that they are respectable. They are people who are made in the image of our creator. That they are people as well and that they, we need to listen and we need to engage rightly. And if they start yelling and they start screaming and they start getting angry, then you, you don't have to answer in confusion. You really don't have to answer. You don't need to get involved. You can simply step away. The reason I say that is because look what Paul did. Here's Paul. He, he's been named. He, the way is being argued against. And so here we go in verse 30. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent him and were urging him uh, to not venture into the theater. They were telling him, listen, you, this, isn't, this isn't for you. Stop. The church gathered and said, we know, you want to, you, we know you want to defend us. Don't do it. Stay. Go home. It's too dangerous. They're not going to listen to you anyway. Right after that, uh, Alexander was shouted down. You know, there are some cases we do not need to respond. The wisest course in many cases when people are angry and in confusion and screaming is just simply to say nothing and to walk away. And that's interesting because this is what Paul is called to. And yet this is what the Proverbs seem to mention to us as well. It says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. But then the very next verse, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, thanks Proverbs, which one is it? Am I supposed to not answer him or am I supposed to answer him? And I find this fascinating is, yeah, you should answer the fool if it's wise to answer the fool. Because you don't want him to think he's wise, but you need to have a wise reply. You need to have a wise answer. But there are many cases you just need to be quiet or you're going to look foolish yourself for even trying to engage. When a culture is in confusion, when it's shouting and yelling, oftentimes you need to just be alone with somebody to talk to them and engage them in, in a simple conversation. You do not need to get into a shouting match. You don't engage in confusion. And in fact, I want to challenge you that if you are in a situation like that, that you go seek help. Get help from your leadership. Go get help from your small group. Talk to a church member. Talk to a brother or sister in Christ before you jump back in. They'll often maybe warn you, maybe you shouldn't get involved in that. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they really are interested. Why don't we really engage? And I hear you. Some of you apologetics guys out there are like, no, we need to get in there. We need to make, a, we need to make an argument, a defense. That's right, we do. Let's look at that verse again. It's found in 1 Peter. It's written by Peter to the church. And he's telling us that we need to put Christ as Lord and holy. We need to honor him. He's the one we want to defend. 
not our own reputations, nothing. No, we were to defend Christ. So we're always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. If we're entering into a mob, the gentleness and respect isn't probably going to be there. If you're angry and responding, that's not gentleness and respect. In fact, the best response so you can be respectful when somebody asks you a question is simply to ask, I'd love to know why you're asking first. What that does is it just lifts the lid on their purpose. And if they're sincere and really struggling with the question, now you're ready to give a defense for the hope that's in you, not to just some person yelling in a mob, angry and frustrated because Christianity's begun to challenge something in their heart or their life. We are not to respond in a mob way. We are not to respond in these ways. We need to stay calm, seek help, pray, and in some cases walk away. Because every impact, when the gospel impacts, man, there's going to be a reaction. And we need to be ready, ready to respond rightly. And it's not going to be anger. It's not going to be in reaction with a return of that same kind of mob mentality. Again, stay calm, seek help, pray, and in some cases, walk away. I think we'll find a lot of fruit in that. You say, but wait, then how is the gospel going to have an impact if we're not going to stand up to these mobs and tell them why they're wrong? And Look, true impact happens through living and sharing Christ. I want to paint for you a positive thinking, a positive engagement here. You see, I found a, there's a fascinating text in here that has bothered me as I've been looking at it and wondering at it. And it's right here in chapter 19. It's in verse 37. And, and it's fascinating he says, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. This is, this, this is the town clerk speaking. And what he's telling them is, look, these guys have neither robbed our temples and they haven't even insulted our goddess. They're not against us. Does that cause anybody out there to be a little like, what? Paul's been in this town for two years, and this man can stand up and say, they never stole anything from our temples. They haven't even defamed Artemis. They haven't stood in there and said, that's not a god, that's not... The. And so it's interesting what the public persona of the gospel is versus the private persona of the gospel. See, when we're together in private, yeah, we need to talk about certain things. We need to engage in certain conversations. We're going to talk about the part of the culture that we need to condemn, the evil in the culture. Right now, in sermons like this, in, in small group conversations, we need to wrestle through what we need to rid out of our lives and discern about our culture. We need to be critical of certain things at certain places. But in the public persona, when we're trying to talk to people, that may not be the best mode, it seems like. That our engagement with others is to be positive with the gospel. Now, I'm not against critique. I'm actually a cultural critic. I'm not against condemning certain parts of the culture. But again, what happens in our private discipleship is for the church. Guys, we're the ones who are supposed to rid ourselves. If you're out there in this world and you're not a Christian you're and you're watching this, look, you, may not, you, you don't have to rid yourself of anything. I mean, I, I will tell you, I believe that you will stand before God one day and you'll have to explain your life and explain why you've done what you've done. But if you love your pornography... And you enjoy it. Why? I mean, I don't think it's healthy for you, but if you love it, then, then who am I to stand in your way? If you, if you absolutely enjoy your alcohol and want to get blitz drunk every weekend, if you want to do your drugs until you're, until you're broken, I want to tell you what Luther said. Martin Luther, 
who started the Reformation, who started the Protestant church, said, sin boldly. And the reason he tells you that is one day maybe you'll find out those things aren't as satisfying as you think. See, one day, yeah, we're going to have to face God and explain our lives, but really one day we're going to have to face ourselves and look at our lives and ask, is this really worth doing what I'm doing? And I'll tell you what, I, I don't gain, uh, I'm not easily pleasured or, or actually I'm not, I'm easily pleasured, but I'm not easily satisfied by any of those things. I'm not easily satisfied by success. I just want more, I want more. And it consumes me. And yet what I found is in Christ, something satisfying far more satisfying. And so, yeah, because he's been more satisfying than these things that have harmed me personally, I've let him go. But that's not you. And you, you need to understand when we're talking as a church, we as the church who follow Jesus, who love Jesus, we need to rid these things. And so church, I want to challenge you when you get engaged with the culture to set out a positive vision of Jesus who is so much more worth than anything in this world, far more worth Artemis, far more worthy than, than our drugs, far more worthy than any party, far more worthy than any kind of um, safety net for our, the sake of our own, you know, our own salvation of our economy, all this kind of stuff. God is good. Now, I'm not saying that we don't engage with the good things in this culture. I'm not saying we don't help the culture. In fact, I'm saying the complete opposite. I'm saying we engage with the gospel of self-sacrifice as Jesus engaged with us. We get out there and we run towards those who are sick. We run towards those who are hurting. We run towards those who need jobs. We seek how to help, how to build up relationships, how to do these things, because that's what the church was about. It was about living out Jesus. And you live out Jesus first. When we live out Jesus first, then suddenly we build culture and we build opportunities for people to ask and then we share the gospel. That means you build artistic beauty in the name of Jesus. I'm not talking about go copy some other guy's song and put Jesus lyrics in. I'm talking about learn the craft, produce true art, be beautiful about it, have the best marriages, have the best kids, build the best schools. Let's have the best opportunities to help drug addicts and homeless people off the streets. Let's help have the best locations that we make the best things for the name of Jesus because we're called to be willing to put away our stuff and ourselves to love others others. That's to live Christ with our finances, with our time, with our family, with our skills, our talents, all these things. See, what they did in the church is they produced new things, new communities that aided the poor, new communities that took children off the street who were going to die and raise them as their own. New communities that began to uh, see power over the demonic. New communities that were willing to pray over each other, support each other, celebrate each other. They started new things like communion and baptism ceremonies. And they started things like, you know, sermons. Suddenly, this movement in Ephesus would grow. It would grow all over the world to the point when there were great famines and great diseases that would sprout plagues that would spread over the Roman Empire. The Christians ran to them and they formed homes. Instead of where the pagans would run away, they would run, form homes, and later those homes would become hospitals, hospices, nursing places. When, when the culture started to fall apart and the barbarians were attacking, they formed monasteries. And those monasteries brought in children, girls and boys, to educate them. And the ABCs, the one, two, threes, a lot of those places became universities. Those universities became places where the science and the arts began to flourish. It was a place where logic and, and discussion of theology became tantamount. And soon science and the Renaissance and the Reformation broke forth because 
the simple living out of Jesus. That's the power and the beauty. And today we see it even as we see Samaritan's Purse run off to all ends of the earth to try to help people. As we see the Red Cross, a Christian invention, continue to help people. It was a Christian organization. The YMCA was a Christian organization to help kids get off the street. We have all kinds of beautiful Christian organizations that are no longer Christian. But they were designed from the acts of living out Jesus. You don't have to be bored in your home. You don't have to sit there and think, all I got to do is type, Jesus loves you to everybody. There's a point for that. We'll get to that in a minute. But there's an opportunity right now to make beautiful, lovely, and good culture right there in your home, right there in your block. And that may be by helping somebody, sacrificing something, caring for somebody, moving it forward. You right now can live the vision of the gospel forward. And then, yes, we share that gospel. We share it. You see, once we get to that share point now, now we can tell them about Jesus. Now we invite them to the opportunity to hear about this Lord who is so satisfying and so amazing that he loved us with such a love that even in our worst states, even in our most broken, awful states, he loves us. He loves us even though we fail him, he loves us. Because he was willing to die on the cross and rise from the dead to give us life. That's how much he loves us to die on the cross, to bear the hell that we should have. That's how much he loved us. To raise from the dead and not just go off to heaven and abandon us, but to give us his presence. That's how much he loves us. To promise us that he's returning. That's how much he loves us. This is the message that we give to people. This is what we share. This one who satisfies, this one who loves us, this one who changes us. And here's the thing I want to leave you with last. Next week is Easter. It's, the, it's an awesome opportunity to hear the message of the gospel to find life. And what I love is that every church that I know of right now is online at some level. And they will be online for Easter. And if we will put it into our minds as Christians to share the message of Jesus, or at least to share the opportunity to hear that message with everyone we know, this is the one Easter in the history of the United States. I believe every person that's online, every person on every social media platform, and then some actually could be invited to an Easter service. What an incredible opportunity as we have lived and shared and done everything we can, that now is the moment. Now is the moment. Maybe now is the opportunity for them to hear and to know that their God loves them, that he's called them to him. And maybe you're listening to this and it's time for you to receive that. Maybe you're ready to say, I'm not satisfied by these other things. And God loves me like that. He loves me that he would give me his son to bear my hell, to bear the punishment. Yes. And right where you're at right now, you can receive that. And where, right where you're at, you, you can press a button that's going to be right there. It's just putting your hand up. Or you can tell the moderator, I want to give my life to Christ. Or I'm here. Yes. Whatever. One of those symbols. Let us know. And what we want to do is we want to give you a chance to receive this gift from God. You can actually receive it right now in your home. You don't have to change yourself. He receives you as you are. He meets you where you're at. He wants to transform you. We want to help you though. And so by letting us know that you're making that decision right now to follow Jesus, to, to ask him to forgive you of your sins, we want to get a hold of you. So click that and then ask somebody for prayer. We will get a hold of you. We want to walk you through on how to do that. Otherwise, church, it's our time. Let's bring this opportunity to our city to our nation. I believe God has given it to us to make an impact. And yeah, 
There'll be a reaction, but hopefully we're ready. Let me pray. God, I ask that you'd bless us and help us to make that right impact and to respond correctly. It's in your name we pray. Amen.